And we've talked a lot, I figured we could probably fit two in, because we've talked about where our righteousness comes from quite a bit. And today we're talking about a couple questions about righteousness that you're going to run into at some point if you are actively engaged in spiritual conversations with people who are questioning about faith and about holiness, righteousness. You've probably had this question um, before, or these questions before. And again, these are catechisms. They start out as a question, and then we talk about the answer. Um, So the first question that we see here is, how does faith make us righteous? So there's the question that, okay, um, most religions would say, you know, how do you become righteous? Well, you do the right things, you, you know, believe the right things, you hold the right um, traditions or sacraments or whatnot, and you believe in Jesus or you believe in whatever God, and, you know, you just walk in their ways and that makes you righteous. Um, but we've talked many times before that it is only Christ and His righteousness that makes us righteousness through faith. And the question here is, so how exactly does faith make us righteous? Because I've heard it, I've heard it state, stated before, well, it, doesn't that mean that there's some sort of work involved? You have to have, if you have faith, then you'll be righteous. And that's something that you do, is the implication that some people get from that. I just have to put, I just have to put faith, and that's a work, right? Um, so how does that correspond with not by works of righteousness? So that's kind of the angle that we're going to be looking at here. So how does faith make us righteous? Let's read the answer together. I am not made worthy because of some righteous act of faith, but the righteousness and holiness in Christ alone makes me righteous and holy before God. And I can only receive these by faith. There is no other way to receive them. So from that answer, what does faith more sound like? Not necessarily an action of righteousness, but how would you put it? It's not not necessarily the work of a gift. It's a gift that you receive. It's a gift. What else? How else would you describe this faith that makes us righteous? Imputed. Imputed. Okay. Given to us. Right. It's just given to us freely. In a way, I think of faith as a portal. The only way that we can actually see the truth. Without faith, there's no means by which you can even see it. So that you might believe it. So there's the faith that God gives you so that you can know what the truth is. It is the vessel of belief. Any other suggestions? Any other pictures? Any other descriptive words that you might give to faith and how it makes us righteous. And is it really the faith that's making us righteous as much as it is God is really the one making you righteous? Faith is the vessel through which you actually see the truth that brings you to God. He allows us to believe. Yeah. Which belief, to me, believing and faith are one mm-hmm. all in the same. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, they work hand in hand. So if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 28. 
all the way to 31. If somebody wants to read that once you get there. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 to 31. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So in this passage, we're establishing what? What do you see being established in, this, in these few verses? I don't think you're going to give me a wrong answer, just whatever you see. Well, it's from, it comes from God. Yeah, it comes from God. So we can't brag about, well, mm-hmm. I can see it and you can't. Right. And what exactly in this passage came from God? There are one, two, three, four things at least. Righteousness, sanctification, Mhm. So those are three, and then there's one right before that. Well, at least wisdom. wisdom. So from God, we receive wisdom. From God, we receive righteousness. From God, sanctification. From God, we receive redemption. These are all things that... Paul is establishing in the beginning of this letter to the Corinthian church. All this is from God. How, and why are we talking about this? Because in verse 27, 28, he's trying to encourage them. The Corinthians were not noble of noble heritage. They were not good characters. They are not the people you would want babysitting your children. Uh, and he says, God chose what is low. I mean, I'm reading out of the ESV today. I couldn't find my other one. Um, So it might be a little different than normal. Um, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What is what is he saying in in those in that in in that statement? What is he trying to teach these Corinthians? It's nothing. It's nothing that they did. Because it didn't make any sense that these people should have been brought into the fold, right? Correct. <laughs> so they're, they're being held as an example to the world. That God does whatever in the world that He wants. In fact, He chooses to act confoundly. <laughs> he, he chooses to act in a confusing manner. So that we never feel like we get Him. Does that make sense? Because once we feel like, I got him, I know his ways, then we're puffed up, then we boast in ourselves. When in fact, from God comes wisdom. You don't have wisdom unless God allows you to have it. So he's establishing, God does not work the ways that humans work. He works in ways that are confusing to people. He works in ways such that we're not supposed to understand them, so that we can See God high and lifted up as higher than us. It kind of sums it up in the last. He, uh, he glories, letting glory in the Lord. Exactly. Just glory to God, not yeah. glory to right. Yeah, the chief end of that, the chief end of this passage is just like you pointed out. So that we can boast in the Lord. So that we can glory in Him. Not so that we can glory in our great conversion, but so that we can glory in the fact that God converted me to begin with. Why in the world did God convert me? You know? Because He chose us. He chose to. 
because of the counsel of his own will. Not because there was a counsel that came to God and said, this person, is, they deserve it. They've had a hard life. They deserve a break. Call them to, <laughs> to be part of your body. That wasn't, no, it's the counsel of his own will. He doesn't tell everybody, even the angelic beings, why he does what he does. And that's also true with your conversion. We don't know why he converted each person in this room. I mean, we live in a, this is a small town. Why didn't he choose any of those other people that are not saved? Why did he pick me? Why am I sitting here, part of the body of Christ, rather than some of those people out there? Yeah, his own doing. He has the answer. He knows why he did it. Do you think you'll ever tell us? Maybe in heaven. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> you know? Whatever the reason is, it's not a reason that gives us reason to boast in ourselves. So you can conclude one thing, that it has nothing to do with behavior that you kind of brought to the table, or skills that you brought to the table. I mean, that's how we choose people, right? You know, who's, you know ever since the, the playground games, you know, all right, you're captain of this team, you're captain of this team, now pick your players. Now, who, who gets picked first? Yeah. Yep. He told Israel why he chose them, so we can probably apply that to us. And that is not because of anything you did, it's because I loved you. Right, just because I, I loved you. Because I loved you. Right. That's <laughs> just the way it is. <laughs> right, right. Even though the Bible also says, for God so loved the world, you know? But he loved them with a special love that, for whatever, for his own reasons, he gave to them. The special sanctifying love. Nope, you're right. So that's what we've established here that it's not, you know, we don't receive our righteousness because of any righteous deed whatsoever, not even a righteous deed such as faith, because faith itself is not a righteous deed worthy of um, boasting. So, 1 John 5 4 to 12. I'm going to read this one because this passage can be a little bit interesting. And it's a little bit longer. I'm going to read this one. 1 John 5, 4-12 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So there you see faith and belief are working hand in hand together. Two different words. Um, you could teach different sermons on each word, but they work hand in hand. They um, go together. This is he, verse 6, who came by the water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. 
Whoever has the Son of has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, this, this passage has a lot of confusing elements in it. Um, I'm going to give you what I think about, as far, you know, the, the biggest question here is, what is he talking about the water and the blood? In my opinion, and different people think differently on these things, uh, different commentaries say different things, and my discernment is, and take it for what it's worth, the water is his, uh, his humanity, his being brought into the world through the womb, um, his blood being that which covers our sins, and the spirit which seals us and binds us to God in eternal life. Now, I'm not even sure if I'm necessarily right on that. That's not something I'm going to be writing a book about anytime soon. Um, and I'm still researching it myself. I've actually researched this for quite a while on and off, and I still am not confident in my, um, in my understanding of it. But to the point that he's trying to make is, in the Old Testament law, a solid argument, a solid case was made if you had three, two or three witnesses. And John is setting up this trial. God is on trial, in a sense. And the Spirit and the water and the blood, these three are in one accord, standing up to testify for the truth, for what is so, an undeniable event. And this is the scene that he's trying to set up in this passage, and that's the most important part here, is that this is undeniable, this is fact, this is the case, because we have three witnesses, and that makes this true. Kind of piggybacking off of the Old Testament law and how cases were supposed to be handled. And he says, um, if we receive, so the Spirit and the water and the blood, these three agree. And we receive the te- if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Okay, so the, the, what's on trial is something about the Son, something about the Son of God. If you're going to believe somebody, then believe the witness of God Himself that He sets up for Himself. And what does he say in verse 10? Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. So if you don't believe what God has said concerning righteousness, then it's as though you see these three witnesses, these three witnesses that are higher than you, stemming from God Himself, and you say, those are false witnesses. Those are false witnesses. And you make God a liar when you don't believe concerning the Son of God. That's what he's trying to get across here. Because he has not believed in the testimony. Okay, So this is the testifying in a court case like we've talked about a couple weeks ago. He's testified. Three witnesses have supported it. And if you say, no, I still don't believe it, then what you're saying is that God is lying. Because you have not believed what God has testified to concerning His Son. So in verse 11, and this is the testimony, this is what he's testifying of, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So this is what these three are testifying to, these three witnesses, making concrete, irrefutable, because they're eyewitnesses to this fact. 
Jesus Christ was born into human flesh so that he could offer himself up as a sacrifice. He shed his blood to cover our sins, to wash us and make us clean, and has given us the Holy Spirit to testify to us that we are the sons of God, sealing us, making us secure in the people of God, according to the election. These three testify one thing, that whoever has the Son has life. I guess two things. If you don't have the Son, then you don't have life. And how do we accept this? By believing. By believing the witness. That's faith. That's what faith is. Those people who don't have faith don't have the portal through which they see the truth. So they reject it amidst the witnesses that we have here in Scripture. The birth, the death, the sealing of God, Jesus Christ. So that's why he says that we must believe. Victory that has overcome the world is our faith. We have seen the truth and have overcome all those who would stand against it. Because we've seen it. Because the Lord has put, given us faith. So that it doesn't matter what anybody else says. I don't know why you're saying that. I see what the truth is. I can't believe anything else. And that's true faith. That when everything in the world comes against it, you still believe it because you see it right there. Because you have the, you've been given the faith by which it makes, it's clear to you now. Regardless of what anybody else has to say about it. Any comments or questions about that? It's interesting. I've read several Muslims that converted that when they're asked are told you need to convert back, they don't say I won't. They say I can't. Right. Because they know the truth now. <laughs> How am I supposed to go back? <laughs> I can't undo being a Christian. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's a picture of what faith is. It's just clear to you now. That's faith. It's not a work. It's not something we boast in. It's just we now see clearly what God did. So faith by nature boasts in God because faith is how we see what God did. Without faith, you can't see what God did. So you have nothing to boast in God about. It's glory. It's glory. You've seen it. You've beheld His glory. Romans chapter 4, if somebody could read 4, 1 through 5. Who wants to read that? What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. So there's the illustration of Abraham, who he followed God, he obeyed Him, but... On what basis did he follow God? Why did he follow God? Because he 
Because he believed. Because he believed God. He just knew that God would be true to His Word. I mean, it was as simple as that. When God told him to offer Isaac on the altar, he believed that God would be true to His Word. So he obeyed. When God called him out from a land to go somewhere where he didn't know anything about, he just considered God truthful and reliable. So he just went. He obeyed because he had faith. So it wasn't his works that produced faith. It wasn't his works that God was impressed by and gave him his wages for his good work. No, it was all the faith that caused him to follow. It was that initial faith of seeing God as trustworthy, of seeing God as reliable and truthful, just seeing Him to be true. With the example of Abraham, my question is, as God takes us through stuff in our faith in believing Him and giving Him glory, in the course of life, does God then give us more? Like, in the very beginning, could Abraham have actually sacrificed Isaac with that faith and believing? Or was it through his life and everything that he did with Sarah and Abraham and the course of his life and the examples, does it increase the faith? I think it does. That he could bring it to a point that, now I'm going to ask for your son. And I do think that it's part of sanctification where it is something that grows. You see and you become more confident because you keep on seeing him be reliable. Because we, are, we still see through a glass now darkly, the Bible says. One day we'll see him face to face. But right now things are still dim. And while he gives us the faith to see the truth about where righteousness comes from, well, what about the faith of all the things that go on in life? Well, the more we live and the more we see him work, the more confident we become. Because even Abraham failed in life. Even Abraham failed. But you see, he typically, I'm trying to remember if this I'm trying to remember a situation where this might not have been true. When God specifically told him to do something, when God specifically commanded something of him, he believed and followed. But in the in the case where he lied about his wife being his sister. That wasn't according to any command of God. He was just kind of traveling, and life was happening. And he stumbled, and he fell, and a lack of faith, <laughs> in a sense. But it wasn't, at the, it wasn't struggling with the command of God, or anything that God said would be so. But as he was walking, he feared. And when Sarah approached him and said, Here, have my servant... Because I'm barren, I'm not going to have any children. Have my servant. You can bear children through her. It was at the word of a person that he fell to. But it wasn't at the word of God. It wasn't when God commanded him something that he so fell. Actually, when Abraham was working and dealing with a human-to-human -human level, he failed. It was mm -hmm. directly working with God. He Stood. His faith, God's whatever, mm -hmm. making his faith and I don't know how, what kind of implications that has in the discussion we're having now, but I can see that element. And in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, you know, the, the author of Hebrews actually said that Abraham did not waver in his faith. <laughs> but we do see a couple of examples where we did. So what's he talking about? Well, when God spoke, he never wavered. When man spoke, he wavered. So maybe that's what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, we should.
and heed the words of God, even if we're not in the midst of Him speaking them. In prayer, we can have all the boldness and confidence as we're having a... Have you ever been like that, where you just had this sweet time of prayer and fellowship in the Spirit, and you just felt like during while you're praying, you could take on the world, but then you go and try to take on the world, and you lose all confidence. <laughs> you know? Have you ever had that experience? I have, many times. Um, well, it would be very important from that, what I gather is, it is that's one reason to be so faithful in mm-hmm. being in God's Word. Yeah. That's God's mm-hmm. communication to us. Right. And every time Instead I... Instead of listening to everybody else. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And that's something that he's constantly coming to me with. Whenever I'm struggling with something, I hear that small voice in my head, pray. Pray all the time. Don't stop praying. Pray more. Pray. I hear it all the time in my head, that voice saying, pray. Just pray. Any questions? We won't get to the second catechism today. What? I just said, uh-oh. What? No, it's fine. It's fine. What else do you guys, what other questions or any comments that you want to make? But also with all that, when it says he gives each a measure of faith, mm-hmm. so is there only a certain allotment that we get? <laughs> well, like we said before, we still see a glass darkly, but then when we see him face to face, we're going to be just like him because we're going to see him just the way he is. So there is an element of struggle. There is an element where this human flesh, we should be excited to cast it off so that we can be with him and see him face to face. You know, in the end of, in, at the end of Hebrews, um, or what is it, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, yeah, we see through a glass dimly, darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. But then right after that he says, now, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest is love. Why would the greatest be love? I mean, there's a number of reasons why you could bring that out. But what do you have in mind? Why in the world could great love be the greatest out of faith and hope? Because aren't faith and hope like crucial? Love is too. Well, love covers a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God is love. That is the one thing that... God, you know, the Bible doesn't say God is faith or God is hope, but God is love. That's one way of looking at it. In the context, he's talking about gifts that God gives the church. And uh, so the greatest is love, he says. Well, why? Well, because that's what's going to make you operate... Like my body, and yeah. people will know you're a Christian. Mm-hmm. There's just all kinds of things coming from love. Right. And without that, like, yeah. the Right. It's the glue that sticks us all together. Because you're right. In Hebrews 11, or 12 and 14, he's talking about how to operate within the church. He's using chapter 13 to exalt love as being the one thing that we should give our whole selves to pursue in regards to spiritual gifts. Because if you're not doing something in love, it doesn't matter what kind of ability you bring to the table, it's worthless. But then he also just said, 
one day we're going to see him face to face. When is that going to be? When is that going to be? In heaven, one day. <laughs> when we stand before him, when we die or Christ returns. When that happens, what happens to faith? Well, like total believing. It's like, yep, there you are. <laughs> yeah. And what happens to hope? You don't, you don't need it anymore. But love will endure throughout all eternity. So that's what makes it, in a sense, the greatest, the number one, amongst other reasons we could bring to the table. But he's saying, okay, so faith, hope, and love, these three all bind us together. But one day we're not going to need faith and hope. But we're always going to have love. We're always going to have love. God doesn't need faith and hope. But he is still love. And all eternity, we're going to have that. But all eternity, we're not going to have faith and hope because we're going to have sight. We're going to see him right before us. However that works in the spiritual realm, I don't know. <laughs> That's all a mystery. But Anyway, what else? Yeah. Because there's only one person ever walked here that was perfect. Mm -hmm. So even though Abraham was about as perfect as you yeah. can get, you know, because when he did sacrifice, when, when he's taking Isaac to Mount Moriah, mm -hmm. he got up early in the morning. He yeah. didn't wait around and right. drink coffee. He, he was, by that yeah. time, he even, his faith was even increased, I think. Yeah. And he knew God would take care of Because he got on it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Showing his confidence. Anything else? <laughs>